Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. We said that the EU has to be stronger geopolitically, and I think it's high time we rename and shame, and that's why we also name China. Hi, and welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard Vera Jourova, the European Commission's Vice President for Values and Transparency. I spoke to her earlier this week about a new plan from the Commission to tackle disinformation related to the coronavirus. As you heard, the document specifically names China, among those it says have used the crisis to spread fake news in the EU along with a bunch of homegrown peddlers of disinformation. We'll hear what the Commission wants tech platforms to do to tackle the problem, and we'll also hear Eurova's latest thoughts on the rule of law in Hungary and Poland. That's coming up later, but first, let's get to our podcast panel. Okay, so a warm welcome to our uh, pan-European podcast panel, Reims in Paris. Hi, Reem. Bonjour and welcome back, Andrew. Thanks very much and thanks for standing in while I was away. Uh, wonderful job. Uh, Matt is in Berlin, still getting set up by the look of things on the on the Zoom screen. Are you ready to roll, Matt? I am, I am, as always. Okay. And joining us to give uh, a more of an Eastern perspective, our senior policy editor, Jan Chensky in Warsaw. Hi, Jan. Hello. Thanks very much for joining us. We had uh, one of our listeners recently said, you know, Europe's not all France and Germany. You know, we want to hear from other parts of the continent and we always listen to our listeners. So, Jan, you've been, you normally divide your time between East and West, between Brussels and Warsaw, but you've been in Brussels and uh, Warsaw through through the whole lockdown. Is that right? Yeah, I've been trapped here. The last flight I had out of Brussels was the first week of March. And so I have been trapped here with my family for going on more, slightly more than three months now. So we're all getting on famously. So. OK, well, you can definitely give us the the Polish perspective. And we apologise to Jan's family for him saying that he feels trapped uh, by spending time with them. Uh, Let's uh, crack on with the first topic, um, which is uh, the announcement that came late last week. Or, you know, we should say this is the thing. There wasn't actually a formal announcement, but uh, the US is going to or is planning to um, substantially reduce reduce the number of troops uh, that it has stationed in Germany. This one has been kind of telegraphed before. It then emerged in a Wall Street Journal story. Um, We were able to confirm it, as were other news organisations. There was no official word for days. And um, finally, uh, Rick Grinnell, who is actually no longer the uh, US ambassador to Germany, did an interview, a kind of farewell interview with Bilt and and confirmed it in that interview uh, today. So we should start in Germany, I think, Matt. Uh, what, What do you make of it all? What's the reaction been there? Well, I'm, I think people are still wondering whether it's going to actually happen or not. 
you know, I mean, they've, they've said that it would happen in December, which is obviously after the election. And there have been a number of instances where Trump will threaten to do something and people kind of, you know, freak out about it. And then it turns out that he gets distracted by something else and, and doesn't follow through. So I, I think there's still a lot of people scratching their heads here wondering, you know, is this actually going to happen? It is more complicated than it might sound to move that many troops out of a country, and especially if they're planning to move a large portion of them to Poland, which is something else that's been reported. Uh, it's not clear where exactly they would go in Poland. More, more broadly speaking, I don't, I don't think people are surprised. Symbolically, it has been telegraphed. There's been, you know, a lot of uh, criticism in Washington under Trump, obviously, of um, Germany and its defense spending. And this, you know, is in view of the of the Trump administration, at least kind of the logical conclusion of this debate. If the Germans aren't going to pay more, then, you know, the U.S. is going to focus some of its efforts, at least elsewhere. That said, there would still be 25,000 troops here. You know, it's also worth just remembering, though, that that the troops who are here are not necessarily here to defend uh, Germany. Many of them are at places like the Landstuhl Medical Facility, which is where um, the U.S. brings all of its wounded from the Middle East. And you have the, the Ramstein Air Base. You have, you know, the, the nuclear weapons that are still here. That So these are things that are in the U.S. strategic interest that are not necessarily tied to defending Germany. I was speaking to somebody yesterday who said, you know, I, I'm not really sure that we really need that many American troops anyway. So I I, I think that the right or wrong, I'm, the Germans don't seem to be particularly worried about it at this point. Right. I mean, I would just say as a, as a former Pentagon correspondent, you know, there can be good reasons for troop numbers going up and down. And, and sometimes the numbers, you know, can be a bit misleading. You know, every time there's a defence review in some countries and there's talk of cutting the number of soldiers, you know, there are people who throw up their arms. And uh, I remember in the UK a few years ago, there's one of these debates and people were saying, you know, we're going to have the lowest army since the size of the army since the Napoleonic Wars uh, or something like that. And you thought, well, warfare has changed a bit like, uh, since then. You know, it's not necessarily about the number of troops you have on the battlefield or the potential battlefield. So um, there are debates and reasons, and these numbers have fluctuated over the years. But what was, in a sense, almost more interesting and is even more interesting today is the way it's being communicated. I mean, in this interview and in built, uh, you have Grinnell going on. Basically, most of his answer about the, the troop withdrawal is about how the Berlin media uh, didn't believe the Trump administration when they talked about this before. And, it, and the only kind of official confirmation we had for several days was a tweet that he put out, which was kind of similar in nature. Um, so it does feel that this is very much... Uh, you know, a political issue rather than, if you like, a kind of military strategic one. Um, but Jan, uh, Matt mentioned the idea that some of these troops may go to Poland or that the US may, you know, rebalance its presence in Europe um, with more of a presence in Poland. What? How does the Polish government feel about this? As I remember, they've been keen to have um, a presence there, but does it seem likely? The, uh, basically, this is something that every Polish government, not just this one, has been pushing for for a very since ever since Poland got into NATO uh, was to be treated as an equal member of the alliance and to have full year-round American troop presence because the the uh, this NATO Russia agreement that as NATO expanded eastward they struck a deal with a very different Russia 
at the time not to permanently station uh, NATO forces in these new alliance countries. And uh, that obviously Russia is very different today in light of what happened in Georgia and what happened in Ukraine. It's much more of a foe than it was at the time of NATO expansion. And NATO is still broadly sticking to the agreement Uh, What they do is that they rotate troops through, so it's not a permanent troop presence, but to all intents and purposes they are, but they're sort of sticking to the letter of the agreement. The Poles would like just a a full-on, boots-on-the-ground, permanent American military presence. And so they uh, they tried to encourage Trump uh, last year to permanently station American troops uh, in Poland, um, even half-jokingly suggesting that this should be this American base should be called Fort Trump in a, in a way to sort of get his ego on, on board with, uh, with, uh, with this sort of a decision. Um, slightly mixed feelings in Poland. In uh, some quarters, you've got like, yes, great, let's, let's shift these troops here. But others are saying, listen, this, this actually shows the unreliability of, uh, of American guarantees and of this current administration can we actually count on the Americans uh, to do this sort of thing? I mean, uh, the, 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 what the Poles would like if the Americans came in is a big American base in eastern Poland, close to the border with Belarus. That doesn't fit with broader American strategic interests, the way that they use the German bases to 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 project power into the Middle East and that sort of thing. Uh, a, a base near Belarus doesn't do any of that for for the Americans and would obviously uh, hugely annoy annoy the Russians. Uh, but there are strange signals. I mean, there was the um, the U.S. ambassador to Poland, uh, Georgette Mosbacher, last month. She was uh, tweeting, uh, if Germany wants to diminish nuclear capability and weaken NATO, perhaps Poland, which pays its fair share, understands the risks, is on NATO's eastern flank, could house the capabilities here. And so there are there's a lot of these these ideas which sort of pop up out of nowhere from this administration. It's unclear how serious or not they are. But again, the broad Polish strategic interest is to have a permanent U.S. military presence in the country. So if that if that if that's what happens out of the German thing, then then a large part of Poland will will see that as a win. Mm, yeah, and we should say that uh, in his interview, Rick Grinnell was talking about bringing troops home rather than you know stationing them elsewhere in Europe. But it was noticeable again uh, that NATO did not appear to have been informed or consulted uh, beforehand. Uh, Certainly, you know, we were all asking about that this week. It would have been the easiest thing in the world for NATO to say, yep, we were informed. You know, the Secretary General had a chat with the President about this. They did not say that. So that has at least left the impression. And I think it's more than an impression that, uh, you know, this came, although not as a complete surprise to them, at least the timing and the way the announcement was made came as a surprise. And Reem, that probably brings us to Emmanuel Macron. Uh, I don't know if there's been much reaction to this in France, but of course, he's the one who's been, you know, talking about NATO as as dysfunctional with some some very memorable uh, phrases along the way. There hasn't been much conversation in France about this, um, at least in recent days. But as you said, obviously, Macron has been sort of at the vanguard of saying we as Europeans within, you know, the, the European pillar within NATO, we have to start having more. He uses the word in French strategic autonomy. The French always say it doesn't mean in French what it means in other in <laughs> other languages and it doesn't have the same connotations, mm. whatever it may be. You know, he's been the one who's been pushing for what he calls sort of a stronger, more affirmed, uh, more autonomous in some ways, uh, European pillar within NATO. He always says, you know, it's within NATO. 
and I, I have to say, I think there's two things here that, you know, we've been discussing on this issue. Um, one, obviously, as Jan said, you know, Poland has a strategic interest and it's obvious why they would be pushing for uh, sort of a redeployment uh, where they are. It doesn't mean that NATO as a whole is ready to change its force posture in such a drastic way because Russia will interpret such a move uh, in a very aggressive way. The other thing is, you know, when uh, Matt was saying that we don't know how many of these troops are there to specifically protect uh, Germany, I think there's also the sort of psychological uh, dimension of this and the psychological dimension of America yet again, uh, sort of just acting on its own, uh, not even bothering, it seems to even sort of uh, inform the German government through the proper channels that it was doing this, let alone the NATO Secretary General. And I think we should always think of all of this in light of obviously, as always with President Trump, the upcoming US presidential election. He really campaigned on this whole, I want the Europeans to pull their weight. I don't want us to be taken for suckers anymore. And now he's in this situation where obviously the coronavirus crisis has him in a tough spot. And this is an easy thing he can point to as he ramps up his re-election campaign. It was interesting that Annegret Kramper, the uh, German defence minister, also mentioned the fact that it was an election year in the US when talking about this. I also wonder, Matt, if the uh, Germans are playing quite a clever game here by saying, well, we haven't been told officially um, because the longer that happens, you know, normally a government might be going to Washington saying, hey, what's going on? But they probably have an interest in just keeping quiet, right? Because the longer this takes to actually become something real, um, maybe the less chance there is of it happening at all. Yeah, I think it's quite smart for them not to come out and to really comment on it in any substantial way, because it really is quite possible that it won't happen. But you know, it's also worth noting that this is not an issue that's really top of mind for most Americans at the moment. And I'm not sure it ever has been really on most Americans' radar that the United States is spending a lot of money on NATO. And certainly in all of the polling that we've seen recently, there would seem to be a lot of support still amongst Americans for a strong presence in Europe, uh, in particular in Germany. And in fact, uh, in recent days, in in response to these reports, you've seen a number of prominent congressmen, um, Republican congressmen come out and say that they're opposed to this move. So I think you really have to take it with a grain of salt. Mm, Interesting. Just wanted to switch gears a little bit. Um, I know, Matt, uh, you were uh, struck by the comments of uh, someone who features regularly in this uh, podcast, the EU foreign policy chief, uh, Josep Borrell, who uh, weighed in on China again this week, actually a couple of times. Uh, We'll hear from Vera Jourova in a moment, um, who co-presented this report on disinformation with Borrell. And again, there uh, he seemed to be you know, taking what would, uh, I think, generally be seen as a softer line on China than some others. Matt, what did you make of his comments? Well, I was pretty shocked by it, to be honest, because, you know, I mean, I think you can argue that Europe should keep its options open with China and, you know, really needs to have good relations with China because it's an important trade partner and so forth. But what he said was that, um, you know, to paraphrase, that that China didn't pose a military threat or didn't have any military ambitions. And, um, you know, I just I just I don't know any serious person who thinks that that's true, uh, especially in in the Asian uh, context. Yeah, but there is an interesting thing with China, with uh, with the, with with Europe 
seeing it in light again of this troop movement that we, we talked about earlier uh, and the unpredictability of the U.S. administration, that Europe, obviously this, this comment is a little bizarre uh, about China, but there is a sense that Europe is no longer welded to the U.S. as a part of the West and is trying to figure out a new role for itself in, in a Trump-led U.S. and a potentially aggressive or threatening China. And so the Europeans are, and, you know, we see it with the areas that my reporters cover, which is sort of climate policy, that the Europeans have long seen, the Americans have completely decamped from the climate negotiating process, and the Europeans have tried to set up a closer relationship with China on emissions and that sort of thing. So this is, I think this is a broader part of ineptly trying to figure out how does Europe stand alone in the world without without being able to rely always on the U.S. and how do you, how do you shape that? Do you want to be an enemy of China? Can you be an ally? How do you how do you sort of work these relationships out? So I think that's something that's a long term process that's being that's being worked out. Right. Well, this is it. I guess I would say also just in in sort of um, not exactly in defence of Burrell, but what some people say is this stuff is not his strong point. Front of the camera press stuff. He's quite a blunt speaker and sometimes also doesn't express himself super well in English. I think behind the scenes, people see him as quite a sharp mind, and the fact that he's older, isn't looking for his next job, um, kind of has nothing to lose in that sense. I think some people see that as an advantage, but I think this is a case about you know playing to your strengths, and if your strengths are not talking to the media, maybe you do it a little bit less, unless, of course, he wants to talk to us, in which case we're happy to hear from him anytime. Uh, I, okay, we've already uh, talked probably for a lot longer than, than we can use. Uh, Reem had to jump off to tune into that uh, briefing from the Elysee, so thanks to her, and uh, thanks to Matt, and especially to Jan uh, for joining us. Regards to your family, Jan, maybe you should tell them not to listen to the first bit of the podcast, uh, but great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks very much. And now let's hear from Vera Jourova, the European Commission Vice President for Values and Transparency. A quick jargon buster for those not deep in the Brussels bubble. You'll hear mention of GDPR, the EU's data privacy law, Article 7, the procedure for dealing with member countries considered to be putting the EU's core values at risk, and of Eurova's plan that EU countries should have to meet certain rule of law criteria to get EU cash. But none of it is as wonky as that may sound. Eurova also mentions her experience of spending time in pre-trial detention after false accusations were made against her. We start with the Commission's new communication, a policy paper basically, on disinformation and the coronavirus. And I asked Eurova just how big the problem is. The problem of disinformation already was big uh, and serious before the pandemic came. And as everything, Corona times are is amplifying the negative and positive things from, from the past. So the, the negative thing here is that the disinformation can influence the people in a bad way. And in case of Corona crisis and COVID-19, the uh, influx of disinformation we saw uh, from the beginning uh, uh, could have caused big harm to the health of the people. That's why we decided to take a special action against uh, this uh, disinformation in Corona time. We already started started in in February to to work more intensively with the platforms, so that they uh, reserve sufficient space for the health authorities and WHO for the authoritative content, for the verified and reliable information for the people relating to 
health and also to diminish the impact of, of the disinformation. Mm. And how much influence can you have on the platforms to actually you know, take the kind of action that you want them to take? Well, we work mainly with the platforms who already committed themselves to take voluntary approach against disinformation in the code of practice. And of course, the platforms are aware that we plan to regulate uh, the content online, illegal content and the harmful content uh, alike. So I think that this is uh, this cooperation is up and running in a in a special atmosphere before the EU will take a stronger stance. Right, but you do plan to take that stronger stance down the line, or or not? If they cooperate enough on a voluntary basis, uh, we have to be stronger in fighting against illegal content. So here I speak about hate speech, about extremist and terrorist content. I speak about child abuse materials. And we will address the illegal content in the Digital Services Act, which we should adopt by the end of the year. As for the disinformation and misinformation, this is harmful content, uh, but we do not necessarily speak here about illegal, about prohibited content. And here uh, we will have to be more careful and uh, I will try to find the right balance in the European Democracy Action Plan, uh, which will be also adopted uh, at the end of this year. No censoring, uh, no ministry of truth, (laughs) nothing (laughs) like that. We just want to give people better choice to have access to data, to reliable information and to be able to compare what they read and to to make their own opinion. You mentioned the phrase Ministry of Truth and, and that brings me to something I was going to ask you about perhaps a bit later, but I wonder how much your own personal experience of growing up in communist Czechoslovakia informs, you know, the decisions and dilemmas that you face in this in this job and where I guess, you know, in a sense, when you grew up, I imagine you were, you know, surrounded by disinformation every day. On the other hand, as you say, you now enjoy the benefits of a, a liberal democracy. So how do you, you know, reconcile those two things? Obviously, you know, being aware of how damaging disinformation can be, but also wanting there to be, you know, plurality and freedom of expression. Yes, thank you. This is, uh, of course, uh, inviting me to recall my my young years. I was 25 when uh, the revolution came happily in 1989. You said that there, there was a lot of disinformation before 1989. There was the only one official version of the truth, Mm. yes? And everything else was punishable. There were a lot of people in prison because of they criticized the regime. So I I have very vivid recollection uh, and and memories uh, on that, on those times. That's why now I have to say for Europe, there must not be any, only one arbiter of the truth. And be it on official in official places, uh, be it the the national or the, the state authorities or the EU, but also there must not be the only one arbiter of truth on the side of the platforms. Yeah, the platforms cannot do this job, so that's why we try to find the middle way, and that's why we want the platforms to work with the fact checkers, 
so that uh, they uh, they guarantee that we are equipped with the facts. And this is what I understand as freedom of speech uh, principle in practice, that there will be a choice for the people to see the facts and to, to make a choice. I would really like to keep the plurality of, of opinions and the certainty that we are equipped with the facts. But, you know, do you ever just feel that you're fighting a losing battle? I mean, Facebook has about two and a half billion users. Any of them can post at any time. Then you've got bots and groups and, you know, there is just so much of this stuff out there. You know, what gives you any confidence or, or feeling that you can actually win this battle against those kind of odds? Well, we have already won a lot by adopting GDPR uh, and I think that we should continue European way of tackling all the negative issues we see on in the platforms and especially Facebook. Uh, yes, it's uh, it's volume. It's <laughs> uh, the the number of of the people who are who are in the system is really varying. Uh, but I believe that by by meaningful rules we can achieve good results. And I think that EU is well equipped. Uh, maybe we are better placed to come with a meaningful solution than the United States. Why do you say that? Yeah, because uh, in the United States, the, the I think that the uh, space for, for the platforms is bigger because uh, they were born in the US and uh, they were growing in the U.S. conditions uh, and uh, in the U.S. legal framework. And still recently I heard from the, from the American partners about the unlimited freedom of speech, about the First Amendment of the Constitution. Uh, I hear from the platform, some of the platforms, that they are only the pipes uh, for, for the oh. content. And something is changing uh, also on your U.S. side. But but I think that the EU has better instinct. And that's why I say we are better placed to come with meaningful rules, better instinct as for the danger. And also we are more maybe scared by what might happen because also the disinformation in, in the EU is uh, somehow harvesting the old sentiments uh, we see new interpretation of the recent history we we see uh, old uh, unhealed scars which we see online and in in the debates hmm. how big a problem are kind of external actors here particularly russia and china who i think are mentioned in your communication you know how much of this is uh, uh, particularly with regard to the pandemic perhaps but also more generally and how much of this is is domestic you know is is fueled by you know things that are happening within countries without any help from outside really both require stronger attention the communication we are going to publish tomorrow uh, is called uh, let's get the, the facts right and we have a lot of facts which show not a new thing that there is continuing russian propaganda specific strategies on on different countries in the eu which are addressing the the people trying to incite some kind of dissatisfaction 
and uh, working with the anxiety and uncertainty of the people. But what's new is the Chinese propaganda, which uh, tries to show and to uh, convince the people that their regime is uh, the only one able to manage the, the corona crisis, that the EU states are not able to manage it. The claim that there are secret U.S. biological laboratories on the territory of former Soviet republics, which was spread by both pro-Kremlin outlets as well as Chinese officials and state media. Also, uh, the story spread that 5G must help to mutate the virus to such an extent that there were episodes of people destroying those masts. So uh, here we see the, the foreign origin. And... This is this is dangerous. We have to be more assertive. We said that the EU has to be stronger geopolitically, and I think it's high time we we name and shame, and that's why we also name China uh, newly. And also, you asked about the internal forces. Mm. Uh, again, nothing new for many dangerous forces in the EU, and so. Here we are, we have our domestic production, we have also very active proxies of the foreign forces, so uh, the scene is uh, rather known or we, we have some mapping, but to know more about that, we also ask the platforms to deliver to us more data and more information. That's why we are newly coming with the requirement of monthly reporting from the side of the big platforms, Specifically on this issue, on, on disinformation around the pandemic? Exactly, uh, because we need the public to know more. Because we believe that the informed people who want to know the truth will be also better equipped. Mm. Just in the final few minutes that we have, I wanted to touch on rule of law, which is also you know, part of your overarching portfolio. And that has also been an issue that's come to the fore during this pandemic. Uh, perhaps most of all, uh, due to the measures that Hungary has taken, you know, the government um, ruling by decree, although the government says that's not what it is. Most other people say that it is. Um, we had Timothy Gartanash on our podcast a few weeks ago, and he said that Hungary is basically now a dictatorship, at least under this current, um, you know, legislation, if you like, or the current measures that it's taken. Do you agree and do you feel you've taken the right action when it comes to Hungary, which is basically saying that what they've done is okay? I would not call Hungary dictatorship. Uh, I would not go that far. But uh, indeed, uh, we uh, are very vigilant about what's happening in Hungary uh, because uh, the emergency regime which was announced was uh, necessarily read in the context of the previous development in Hungary where we saw many varying trends. Uh, we are still analyzing some of the decrees and we will analyze uh, very carefully uh, what is planned to happen after the emergency regime will be terminated. It has been announced by, by the Minister of Justice for, uh, I think, 20th of June. And this will be the moment of truth, whether... Uh, the situation uh, and the legal order and uh, the balance of powers in Hungary will come to the old normal, uh, which is uh, 
which already was a kind of complicated uh, or whether there will be some remainders of, of the of the emergency regime which we would see as a, as a problem uh, from the EU uh, law point of view. But it, was there not a case for taking firmer action against Hungary? You, um, you know, just going back again to, you know, your own personal experience, you know, we had a, at least one case, I think more than one case in Hungary of people being detained for things that they had posted on Facebook, which the government, you know, decreed uh, not accurate. I mean, this is, you know, Ministry of Truth stuff, isn't it? Yes, I was I was very worried. And I, I was really very, how to say, um uh, unpleasantly surprised that it was done, that it was done in front of the general public, that the people were known, they were took to the, taken to the police and, and investigated and then, then released uh, with the excuse uh, of the official places, that, uh, with the explanation that they have made a mistake. Well, I myself experienced such, an, such a situation. And the detention and the police investigation, it's a... It's a very, it's a big blow to everybody uh, and to, to his or her family or to, to his or her professional career. And to, to have experienced this uh, in front of the, of the public, well, this is, this is really something which could deter others from the criticism, which could have a chilling effect not only on the journalists, but, but on the general public. And I, I honestly, I really didn't like this. We have to differentiate between the the possibilities to take a, a legal action, and on mm. these two cases, we we could not do it because uh, it was not a systemic thing. Uh, but I I cannot resist. I have to say I I really didn't like it, and I think that this these are the things which uh, we should refrain from doing in the EU. Mm. Finally, then on Poland, I noticed yesterday on Twitter you were criticizing again the. Um, or noting with concern the latest developments with the judiciary there, is there anything more the Commission, you know, can and should do there or will do with regard to Poland and the judiciary? Poland's already under Article 7 as well, of course. We have to continue the legal actions, which are infringements, where they are up and running. We have to continue the Article 7, but we have to start a new chapter of the dialogue after the Polish presidential elections. I, I do believe there will be a space and hopefully also a goodwill from the Polish side to to sit around the table and to come back to the basics and to, to discuss what they plan and whether they, I would really like to, to hear whether they recognize that there are things which the commission has to address, that the, the Polish judges are also European judges and we, we, we cannot see the degradation of the independence of, of uh, judiciary in any state. Then we will have the rule of law report in September, which will also show the objective picture of where we are uh, with the rule of law principle. And there we will see the comparison of, of the states. Uh, right. This will be like an audit where you have all of the all of the countries get a kind of rule of law checkup. Yes, I was really very strong in insisting that we have to uh, come with a very clear objective methodology and the reliable sources of data so that nobody can say that this is an activist thing. Uh, and the last thing, yes, I have spoken about that. Uh, we need to condition the money by the rule of law. I don't see any other chance. 
That was European Commission Vice President Vera Jourova, and that's almost it for this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favourite listening platform so you never miss an episode. Please also take a moment right now, if you can, to rate us by clicking some stars and leaving a review. As you heard from our Polish-flavoured panel this week, we always take on board feedback from listeners. You can drop us a line anytime at podcast at politico.eu. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez and thanks to you for listening. 